There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kerminski and Colin Andrews. And Greg, last week we talked about estate planning in our episode that we titled, I'm Dead, Now What? And that was a fun conversation. We're going to spend a few episodes in the future revisiting some of the more intricate details around this topic. But today we're going in a different direction. We're not going to discuss death and dying per se, but maybe death and dying of markets. We'll get into that a little bit. But today we're going to speak with an industry expert, Sarah Newcomb is a PhD behavioral economist for Morningstar. And I believe she's actually the director of behavioral science at Morningstar. She's an accomplished author, having written a book called Loaded, Money, Psychology, and How to Get Ahead Without Leaving Your Values Behind. I like that. So I hope we get into that. So I recently listened to Sarah on an interview with Daniel Crosby's podcast, Standard Deviations, and was thrilled that she agreed to join us for today's discussion. So Welcome to the Free Lunch Podcast, Sarah. Thank you. It's a privilege. Well, Sarah, just to get started, where are you joining us from today? I am in central Maine in a little town of about 40,000 people, about an hour from Acadia National Park, surrounded by woods and mountains and ponds and rivers. That sounds relatively idyllic. It's pretty great. Saw a frog (laughs) yesterday, bunch of mushrooms. I love it. Oh, nice. Just to get started, tell us your story. How did you end up where you are today? People get really excited about those three letters, PhD, but I like the definition of expert. That is an expert is someone who has made all the mistakes that can be made in a certain area. And I definitely feel like that's how I got into this. I found myself in my mid-20s having had to wait until I was 24 to even take out student loans without a cosigner and go to school. I went in undeclared. So I was meandering around for a while in my early adulthood. I found myself with a degree in math, expecting my daughter and young family, and I couldn't get my finances together. And I thought, okay, hey, it can't be about numbers because I love numbers. I love the problem-solving aspect of math. And so I thought, if this is a logical exercise, then clearly I'm failing it. And there's something going on here other than the numbers. So I thought, look, I am tired of being poor. Being poor is exhausting. And I had known nothing but financial struggle from early childhood. And I thought, look, if I can understand the fundamental theorem of calculus, I must be able to learn how to manage money in such a way that I'm not struggling all the time. And so I decided to learn how financial planners manage money because I thought if I learn from the pros, then I can do the right thing with my money. But it was in the course of training to become a personal financial advisor that I took an elective in psychology, specifically psychology of financial planning. 
And the psychology of clients, the psychology of wealth, the psychology of class tension, the psychology of money. And that was where I finally was able to start to unlock my own dysfunctions with money because it's not about interest rates and numbers. Those are important. What it really comes down to is the stories that we tell ourselves because of those numbers. You give someone a number. All sorts of judgments fly through their mind and they'll be subjective. They're very much dependent on who that person grew up around and the culture that they were steeped in, the stories that they listened to, the people that they compare themselves with, their mental state. All those things are brought into every one of our financial decisions. And yet we treat it as if each one is just a math problem. And so for me, that was when I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to dig into this. I can't be the only one. Can I ask you, you brought up the word struggle in your answer there. Having come from a background, a family with, it's not like we didn't have food on the table, but we didn't have a lot of extras. And my kids have a different life. They haven't faced struggle. And so when we accomplish something as a couple, my wife and I, I can appreciate it, but I don't think my kids appreciate it because they haven't had struggle. Is that kind of what you've experienced? Well, I mean, I can only see things from my personal vantage point. We can look at some research to how do people respond to things from this background versus that background. But I do think there is something to the fact that I think that privilege I mean, let's just dive right in. Privilege is blind. That's the issue with privilege. We don't experience privilege as the presence of favoritism. We experience it as the absence of barriers. And so when those of us who have had to work harder for what we have than maybe our children, we may appreciate it more because it was harder won. The cost was we paid a higher cost in effort or whatever to get to the same opportunities that our children may have. First of all, let's remember that that's why we paid that cost because we wanted to give them opportunities that we didn't have. So good job, you. And that's what intergenerational stability and growth is supposed to be. Then helping them, like, I think you're right. You cannot see things unless you experience them. You can sympathize, but you can't empathize. When you haven't experienced struggle, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily set up for financial failure or that your psyche is somehow going to be negatively impaired because you didn't struggle. But I do think we have to point out to those of us who have maybe moved up a class or a grade, we do have to sort of point out to our kids maybe what advantages they have over others, not so that they will feel guilty, not so that they will shame themselves or make others feel bad, but so that they can recognize when you have resources at your disposal throughout your life, there are going to be more opportunities to you. When you have a safety net at your disposal, you can take more risks. Those are privileges. What it means is you work hard and then you see the results of your labor. And that's great. That's great. Where we get into trouble is when we turn around and we say to other people, just do what I did. When they face barriers and the terrain that they're walking is very different terrain than you walked. That's where privilege gets us into trouble. We don't need to be walking around flagellating ourselves because we 
are giving our children opportunities or because maybe we have opportunities that others didn't have access to. I think we need to not judge others by the same standard when they're walking a different path. Interesting. Well, clearly your background obviously played prominently in your writing of your book, Loaded, and you've got some insights there into how your personal experiences shaped your attitudes and things like that and how you can build a healthier relationship with money. Can you give the listeners kind of like the Coles notes, as we say here, or maybe Cliff notes in the U.S. version? (laughs) That's the dead giveaway that you're talking to two Canadians. We use the term Coles notes notes. versus Cliff notes. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the Cliff notes of this are that, first of all, I want to sort of structure behavioral economics involves both social psychology and cognitive psychology. So social psychology is how we relate to ourselves and others. So even how we relate to money and our belongings is part of social psychology. Cognitive psychology is about sort of how we categorize information in our brains, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes consciously. Both of these types of psychology have links to financial decision-making. And so all these areas are very rich in being able to understand how our attitudes toward money develop, how they're influenced by our cultures and our societies, and then how we in turn relate to our world, relate to money, relate to other people who have it or other people who don't. And so there's a whole tapestry of deep research here that I can't possibly sum up in a few sentences, but I can say this. By the book. That's what you're trying to say. Yes, by, by the book, book. <laughs> by the book, for sure. But we tend to like to polarize. We like to go binary. We like to demonize wealth. We also like to demonize poverty. We like to glorify wealth. We like to glorify poverty. We do these things off and on. Sometimes we do both at the same time. We have what I love being referred to as a hostile envy toward the wealthy. And that hostility is often manifested or seen in negative attitudes and biases against those who have wealth. The envy is in how we tend to unconsciously judge, and this has been shown in study after study, we tend to think that wealthier people are more friendly, more competent, are cleaner. These are the (laughs) kinds of biases that we've been shown to have. We just associate poverty with all sorts of negative things. But then we have many cultural stories that glorify poverty and that even say that poverty can be a path to enlightenment. And so we have these mixed messages about both poverty and about wealth, where wealth in many of our stories, our parables, our fables, even our scriptures, in many cultures, the reward for good living is often wealth. And yet, They also seem to communicate wealth is only okay when you don't seek it, because if you seek it, then you are black-hearted, you are motivated by greed. So we have this extremely moralistic relationship with both poverty and wealth. We can see it in many aspects from the laboratory at universities to conversations at church. And to pretend that these things do not affect our financial decisions would, I think, be really overlooking a lot of important information. Fascinating. Wow. Well, listen, I think the best thing for people to do is to read your book, obviously, to see how they can 
keep their values while still improving their relationship with money. Wait, Greg, are we promoting Sarah's book? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think we are. Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about investor biases for a minute, because obviously that plays directly into a lot of things that you do with Morningstar and we do with our clients. How important is it for investors to actually understand their own biases? I think it's important to understand the shortcuts and rules of thumb that you're employing because they, again, this is about skipping important information. Rules of thumb are not necessarily often called biases negative, but some of them are great adaptive traits, really great ways of making good enough decisions when you don't have complete information or unlimited time, and therefore we have to simplify. So rules of thumb can be very useful. When heuristics and rules of thumb get in our way is when either the rule is far too simplistic, so it doesn't actually fit the situation well, or when you use the wrong rule of thumb for the wrong situation. Some of them also are just wrong and misinformed. When making decisions, what's the importance of understanding your biases? It's really about understanding what shortcuts you tend to rely on and what rules of thumb you use and just applying a little bit of critical thinking to those when you're not in the heat of the moment to be able to say, am I using the right rule for the right circumstance or do I need a little bit more information in this situation? If you had to pick on one behavioral or cognitive bias that causes investors and their advisors the most grief, what would you pick on? (laughs) because I myself am subject to availability bias. There's a really interesting one I've recently learned about. There's one that I think is the worst habit of mind for your money, period. And then there's one that affects financial decisions. So I'll try to tap on each one. The worst thing that I think we can do for our finances is allow ourselves to continue in short-term thinking. Some of us are naturally long-term thinkers and those blessed minds are thinking 30 years ahead and they're planning and they're saving. And because they're naturally thinking along this long-term horizon and therefore they're seeing this future mentally and they go and they plan for it. People like me, on the other hand, have to really force ourselves to think beyond maybe a month into the future. It takes work to develop that habit. So what we know is present bias is the extent to which you discount the future. And that discounting of the future has to do with how you picture the future. Can you even see it? And how far is, I like to call it your mental time horizon. We often think about your investment time horizon. And that's, again, the mathematical equation. But think about how it looks in your head. When you're looking forward into the distance of your life, how quickly does it become blurry? Or can you clearly into the future? Are there clear temporal landmarks that you can see along the way that help you to make these planning decisions? So present bias, I think, is the overall the worst. But we hear a lot about present bias. So I think when it comes to investing, the biases that can really trip us up are things like overconfidence. That's we read a little bit, we hear about something, and suddenly we're an expert and we've got that hot tip. Oh, you're just talking about COVID now. (laughs) Yeah, we're all geniuses after last year, aren't we? It's interesting because 
one of the things that gets my goat, so to speak, is what I think you've seen a lot in the States right now. And obviously, things are a lot more polarized down there than they are up here in Canada. But this whole concept of do your own research, which you hear a lot on certain U.S. cable news channels, it's so unbelievable that people would be expected to do their own research on whether a vaccine is safe. Not many people out there are epidemiologists or microbiologists that have studied this. And you work for one of the largest investment research companies in the States with no doubt hundreds or thousands of experts doing research on mutual funds and individual securities. And yet clients want, I want to do my own research first before I make a decision on an investment strategy or a particular stock. And we run across that all the time as well. So what is it that makes people discount expert advice and believe that their own research will somehow yield them better insights or better results? Yeah. So I think there's a couple things going on there. I love this question. First of all, you're completely right. Your armchair research is not going to be very likely to exceed the value of the experts. I think there's two things going on. One is that, and I think rightly, we don't want to completely outsource our thinking to someone else because that is a loss of control beyond what feels reasonable to a lot of us or even responsible. If you don't know why your advisor is making the choices with your money that they're making, it's going to be very hard to trust that strategy when things go wrong. And so I think part of it is just that sense of participation in the decision-making. And so maybe what advisors can do to help build that confidence and trust, which is what we're really after when we're going to do our own research. And that was my second point this is that I think it's about wanting that sense of control so that we can have confidence and so that we can trust the decision that we're making. So you can encourage that maybe by doing a lot of research ahead of time and saying, here's three or four options that I see for your portfolio. Here are the attributes that I think are the most important. Now, I would be happy with any one of these for you. Why don't you go and see which one is best in your mind? That might be a good way to approach this need for feeling like you're participating. And part of it goes to this sense of control because there's so much uncertainty in markets. The less that you understand about what's happening in the markets, not that those of us that know a lot understand a whole lot more, there's just endless questions, but the less that you feel you know, the more uncertainty, the more that uncertainty will be emotionally salient to you. And therefore, that need to feel control over some part of the decision-making is actually going to be exacerbated. So it may actually be that the people who know the least want to control the most because of that feeling of uncertainty that not understanding can bring. Talking about uncertainty, we talk to clients all the time about how people are looking for certainty in something that is completely and forever uncertain. So it's interesting to bring that back to a control function. I kind of like that because maybe tell us a little bit about hindsight bias. This is one that we run across all the time. So even March of 2020, when the US stock market was down 35% in two weeks, everybody's kind of forgotten about that, but that happened. During that period, there was a lot of fear out there for all kinds of things. And people now look back at it and say, yeah, but I knew it was going to come back. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of hindsight bias? 
Yeah. Hindsight bias. I think we, (laughs) we all do this in so many areas of life. The winds turn a certain way and suddenly everybody saw it coming. Everybody had their theory all along. I think it also goes back to this sense of wanting control. Like you said, there is inherently we're dealing with probabilities here. And we do all sorts of complex math to try to play the probabilities, but we're dealing with probability distributions. There is no deterministic path forward. So when we look back, I think that once we have that new information, suddenly new information, things look clearer. So looking back, it just seems so much clearer. And maybe you had some hunches. Maybe you had a couple trains of thought along the way. Those have now been validated. They will come to top of mind. If things had gone the other way, the thoughts you had in that direction would be validated and would come to top of mind. Because the reality is when in that situation, you were confused, you were uncertain, you thought maybe this and maybe that. And then when A happened instead of B, all those thoughts about A that you had, well, of course you had them. You also had thoughts about B. Interesting. I guess that's why everybody knows a building they could have bought for $30,000 20 years ago, and it's worth a million today. So yeah, we've all got those stories for sure. (laughs) One of the things that sort of Semi-topical, I guess maybe it's six months old now, but can you help us understand maybe some of those emotional or cognitive biases and behaviors that led to some of the extreme stock price movements? We saw things like GameStop and AMC, the whole Robinhood trading experience that we went through last year. I thought we weren't going to talk about GameStop anymore. Well, you know what? We've got a behavioral person here. We have to. Yeah, good, good. (laughs) I wouldn't even call them biases. I think we're dealing with psychological forces that are not necessarily named in the canon of behavioral science. Some people could call it FOMO, but I think that what's happening specifically when it comes to the changes in fintech, the changes in access to different types of trading, more and more sophisticated leverage trades are available to all sorts of investors of all ages and incomes and sophistication. I think that what we're seeing now is a combination of more access to all sorts of trading styles and a growing frustration with the status quo and the power structures of Wall Street. There's nothing new under the sun. So we have seen this in many other instances, but this is a new hype of bubble. I kind of thought of it as like a micro bubble when it first came up. I started thinking about all these little like champagne, these little micro bubbles where what happened was that a group of investors realized that if they pooled their resources, they could have a larger influence on the markets than they would individually. That's what funds do all the time. And so they decided to team up and throw their weight around a little bit. And that got exciting. And the feeling of power in an uncertain world, and especially a feeling of power when they felt powerless. And the stronger that the investor's identity is connected to feelings of powerlessness, the more appealing the sense of being able to team up and have power. The David and Goliath story is especially appealing for people who feel like David. And so I think that's what we're seeing is more of that social psychology than biases in that situation. What actually seems to tie into what you were talking about earlier is maybe this hostile envy that some people maybe have towards either the wealthy or in this case, the greedy hedge fund managers. 
Right. Why are the hedge fund managers able to play by different rules? And this is one thing that appeals to me about the mission of Morningstar is that the idea of giving quality ratings and research to any investor that wants it so that they can make informed financial and investment decisions is about trying to stack the deck back in the individual investor's favor. And if you feel like you're playing with a deck that's stacked against you, that resentment can definitely affect the types of strategies, money-making and stick-it-to-the-man strategies that you are going to get excited about. Interesting. One thing, Dan Ariely and others talk about how we can use our understanding of behavior to help people experience better financial outcomes by making things more of a default, like savings plans, making it a default option rather than giving people the opportunity to, they have to opt out rather than opt in. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how, why this works so well and how we can expand that in, say, everyday lives as well as obviously our financial lives? Defaults are doing God's work, I think. In many instances. So for example, my credit score would still be in the toilet if it weren't for automatic bill payment, because I do not have to keep track of that information on a daily basis. My head is full of enough things that I'm trying to manage and keeping track of that stuff is not something that I am especially talented at or inclined to do. And so taking there's the upfront cost of spending an hour tracking down passwords and setting up automatic payments. But the fact that I have had those tight, all of these important transactions that reflect on my credit score automated for the last eight to 10 years has meant the difference between hundreds of points on my credit score from the beginning of my financial journey until now. And so I think that automation, when it comes to the simple decisions that take up energy and don't need to, automation can really, really help us. Again, where any rule of thumb or any shortcut can get in the way is when you are outsourcing your thinking too much or simplifying it too much. And so automating complex decisions may not be as useful, but most of the complex financial decisions that we make, there's no automation strategy for. I think that those automations and nudges can be really effective for certain types of decisions that are just, they burn calories, they burn cognitive load, and there's no reason why we can't simply put them on a decent schedule. The only way that those kinds of automation things don't work is if you don't have enough slack in your budget to be able to anticipate an upcoming bill. If you're in a situation where you're in survival mode and you're needing to really watch every dollar, then automated payments aren't something that's realistic because you have to be able to know what's coming in. So if you're at that point in your financial journey, then it's really about careful watching over, but looking to build up enough slack. That should be your first priority is to build up enough slack in your budget that you can automate your payments so that you don't miss any. Same thing with automating savings, especially for people, for short-term thinkers, for people who find saving unpleasant, uncomfortable, painful even. 
automating savings and putting it using mental accounting to your benefit. So put it in an account that's hard to get to. Forget the password. Do things to keep that money sort of separate out of mind and just automate the money that's going into it. You can automate, if you're doing dollar cost averaging, you can automate rebalancing in your portfolios. There are simple sort of financial hygiene tasks that we can put on autopilot. And then there are other things that require more higher order thinking. And those are the things that we can spend the mental calories on. I like that financial hygiene <laughs> task. That's excellent. Now, just so everybody knows, we're not talking about money laundering. We're not talking no. about washing <laughs> money. We're talking about just cleaning up your processes and dealing with money. So listen, I think that takes us to the end of our heavy lifting. That was a really great discussion, by the way. Thanks for doing that. We do like to finish off with a speed round for our guests. I hope you'll play oh along. I will try. The first part, you already nailed. That was the heavy lifting. This is the easy part. So there's no, okay. no right or wrong answer. So Greg, you want to kick us off? The first couple of questions are pretty generic, but we will get into some Canada-specific questions, which we always use for oh our U.S. guests. So <laughs> first of all, what do you do for fun when you're not working? I spend as much time as possible in non-human spaces with my dog. Nice. In the woods, in nature. Watch out for bears. Yes, it's yes, bear season. Yes, that's why I have a big dog. There you go. I also read an inordinate amount of sci-fi novels. Oh, excellent. Sci-fi. Fantastic. And what are you reading right now? Right now, actually, I'm not reading a sci-fi novel. Right <laughs> now, I'm reading A Night's Sleep, Death in the Stars by Joyce Carol Oates. Sounds like some easy reading. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty heavy <laughs> And what about, given we've all been through this pandemic together for the last year and a half, are you a binge watcher? Are there any shows that you're watching right now? Oh, well, Tad Lasso has oh. <laughs> been a great one. I've loved that show. I've also been watching the miniseries, the Philip K. Dick miniseries for a second time. Oh, yes. I can't remember what it's called. It's a play on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. It's called Electric Dreams or something like that. It's great. I love it. I've had a hard time getting into that one. I'll have to give it a try again now that you've mentioned it. <laughs> Colin, what about some Canadian-specific questions? Well, we're going to hit you with a hard one just to start it off. Greg and I both grew up in a place called Saskatchewan. I grew up in Saskatoon, and Greg grew up in Regina. Can you please spell Saskatchewan for us? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Okay. Hold on. There's a time limit All to right. this question. S-A-S-K-A. T-C-H-E-W-A-N. Oh my gosh. Wow. You're the first... the first person to ever get it right. <laughs> Did I get it right? You, you got, got it right. Up. I mean, Daniel Crosby, I can't even tell you what he told us. I think it was like S-A-Q. <laughs> <laughs> I had to write it to get the letters out in order in my head. Like, I don't want to discount the significance of this. I mean, that is, how many American guests have we had? Maybe We've had quite a number. and Eight or nine. Yeah, you're the first. So yeah. congratulations. Kudos. I live in Penobscot County. We have a lot of strangely named rivers and all from native languages that are very much like Saskatchewan. Well, Penobscot is kind of a different one for me, so I'm not going to try to spell and I, that. I don't want to date myself, but it seems to me that on MASH, Major Houlihan was either engaged or dating a Colonel Penobscot. So really, clearly <laughs> there's relevance there. We'll just do one or two more just because you did so well. <laughs> Tuke. Do you wear a toque? I do not know what a toque is. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Oh, I guarantee I you do. Okay. You have winters in Maine, right? Yeah. Yeah, you have snow, right? It gets cold. Yeah. yeah. 
you put a hat on your head. It has like a pom pom on the top of it. It's like a yeah. wool hat kind of thing. Yeah. You probably call it a beanie. That's a toque. It's called a toque. Yeah, a beanie or that's called a toque. That's yep. a toque. Cool. Yep. yep. Well, let's do yes, one, one last one, Greg. One last one. Okay. All right. When we're in university in Canada, we practically live on KD. Do you know what KD is? I guarantee you've eaten it. KD. I have no idea. It's coming, like, all I can think of is mac and cheese. Is it a version of mac and <laughs> exactly. cheese? Exactly. Kraft macaroni and cheese in Canada is called Kraft dinner. It's marketed and- Kraft <laughs> dinner. And, and so I there thought you the go. So KD. So well <laughs> nice. done, though. You nailed it, actually. So Yeah, that was good. That was good. Well, it helps living so close to the Canadian border. Exactly. <laughs> well, listen, thanks again, Sarah. That was a lot of fun and a lot of very interesting conversation about all things cognitive biased. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It was great. All right. Well, listen, till next time then, next time we're going to look at something else. I'm not quite sure yet. I think we're going to get back into that. You're dead now. What kind of discussion, but exactly. Sarah's still with us. So thanks again. And we'll catch you next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.